Good evening. How's everyone doing? Good. Awesome. Got a response there. Normally, evening crowd's kind of dull. Not as an insult, but like slow to respond. But <laughs> We're in Amos, and we're in chapter 5. We're doing the whole chapter, so fasten your pew belts. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves him in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look down upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me to sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sekuth, your king, and Kian, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Good evening.
We're in Amos. Welcome back here. And let me just open us up in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And if anything, God, I don't want to misrepresent you or your heart, your love and grace and mercy, kindness, gentleness for people. But I also don't want to sugarcoat how severe you can be and how just you are and how righteousness and holiness matters. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth uh, ministering to each person's life individually, that they wouldn't misinterpret what is being said, that they would understand just the immense love that you have for them, even though there may be some difficult things to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, prior to this Amos study, how many of you wondered what in the world is this book about? Like, you just read this thing, you're like, what? Just one? All the rest? Three? Four? Five? Okay, now we got $5, $10. Well, you know, chapter five is probably not going to help. <laughs> so, as we look at chapter five, Amos gives us this picture, and I want to give this picture to you as we go through this study, because it's going to be really important to keep this word in mind as we're going through this. And the word is this. Lamentation. As we are going through this entire chapter, that you keep that word in your head. Because oftentimes when we're doing these prophetical books, people are thinking that, you know, the prophet just wants to reprimand people and rebuke people and just tell people off and things like that. But you really have to get the sense here that Amos is doing this out of a really, really heavy heart. He's not doing this out of any joy. He's not reveling in the fact that he's telling these people this horrible news. That he is lamenting as he's saying these things to them. And so even as I come across and I'm, I'm saying these things, I noticed that this morning that, was that kind of angry? I mean, I, I did not want to represent God in such an angry way. But there are some things that I lament and I mourn over and that I'm talking through as I'm sharing these things. So I'm hoping that that comes across and it's not like anger or it's not rebuke and it's not reprimand. But please keep lamentation in your mind as we go through this. And now that you have that word in your head, let's go to verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. And so... We need to imagine sadness, lament, mourning surrounding his words to Israel because this tone that he is saying all these things in is very grave. So you picture Amos being grieved as he's sharing this news. So imagine a doctor who's telling a family that a loved one in that family has a terminal illness. And so you imagine the difficulty for that doctor to share that sort of news with the family and that's kind of how Amos is feeling because he's giving Israel their death announcement. He's saying like, this is going to be your disaster. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. So here's a picture of a future bride who never experienced marriage. She was left for dead. She was forsaken. And it's a picture of Someone who had these great possibilities and this great potential, but it just turned out extremely tragic for her. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Now, when we're considering what's happening here, we have to consider the historical facts. What really happened in history? 
Well, we know now that Amos prophesied 40 years prior to any of this happening to these people. And what he prophesied four decades earlier came true. Because Israel was crushed by the Assyrians led by King Sargon. And history confirms that. That King Sargon's conquest of the kingdom of Israel, that is fact. The exile of the Israelites out of Israel, out of the kingdom, is fact. So you see how history matches up with Amos' prophecy. Even though it's decades later. And so when Israel was attacked by the Assyrians, there were all these different cities, right? So one city had this many soldiers. We have a thousand men to send over to that battle against the Assyrians. Well, guess what? That city only had a hundred guys come back. And the smaller cities that could only send a hundred guys, well, that city only had ten guys come back. And so you see here that they just got demolished. They were just annihilated. And so then... Amos has this appeal to be made to the Israelites. Because he's saying, you know what, it doesn't have to be this way. It will be this way 40 years from now if you guys don't change. But if you guys change, it doesn't have to be this way. Verses 4 and 5. Here's the appeal. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Seek me and live. You don't have to die. But do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. So God said, seek me and live. Now why did God say that? Because they weren't seeking him. So he's telling them, seek me and live. Now why are Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba mentioned here in this verse? Because these three places have an extremely spiritual significance. They're really important heritage sites between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel. So when you think about this biblically, what was Bethel all about? Well, Bethel was where God met Jacob, right? Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 35. Gilgal was where God rolled away the reproach of Egypt from Israel, Joshua chapter 5. Beersheba was where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they communed with God at that spot. Genesis 21, 26, and 46. So these are their spiritual heritage sites. These are really important sites to the Jewish faith. Now what happened was that the people related more to those places than to God over time. And so God wasn't looking at how they paid homage to those places, that something that was spiritually significant once happened at those places, so pay homage to those places. He was not looking at that at all. God was looking at how their heart was postured towards Him. Not, you know, after years and years of time that people would still be devoted to the place. He wasn't concerned about people being devoted to the place. He wanted people to be devoted to Him. So the places where God showed up became more important than the presence of God Himself. Well, the strange thing is that the places only became significant because of God. But here we have these people neglecting God and they're revering the place. And the same thing is happening today. Right? We, we have these places of significance, these places that we've created these memories and we have these awesome stories attached to a place and they've just become really important to us. But the thing is, what brought significance to that place? 
That's the important thing. And the person usually that brought significance to that place is being neglected even though they're right next to you and you're just kind of looking at the place and all oh, that place is so great and all this kind of stuff, you know, it's awesome. And so, you know, all, all of my children, they were born at Kaiser. And so, you know, very fond memories of Kaiser. Right? This is, I, I love Kaiser. It's very significant. All my babies were born there. But the thing is, my children are the ones that brought significance to the hospital. The hospital didn't bring significance to my children. Without my children being born there, I wouldn't care less. This is just where I get my checkups. The only reason why they're significant is because my children were born there. And so you get the idea, like Israel is paying respects, honors, homage to Kaiser. Like we all are, because we all love Kaiser, right? Thrive. Right? So... <laughs> Yes, places are important. Places are important, but they're not the most important. And so Gilgal will go into exile, and Bethel will become nothing. And what God did in those places, it was just awesome. To encounter God, to just be right there with God, that is an awesome experience. But God has since moved on with his people. So if you go down to Beersheba today, you can go down there today because Abraham's well is still there and all that stuff's still there. They kind of duplicated the hut and all this kind of stuff. The well's dry right now. But you can go there. But you know what? It's desert. There's nothing there. It's just desert. And so God has since moved on because His presence is with you. He's not lingering at that place. It's not like God is twiddling his thumbs in that desert place in Beersheba. Like, I wonder when the next time someone's going to come visit me. I wonder when the next pilgrim group is going to come through. He has moved on with people. And so places of spiritual significance are only made significant because he's there with you. He's not there absent of people. And so the church building, this building, has spiritual significance based on whether the presence of God is here or not. And so it's not about religious things being done here or showing up here during certain times of the year because if we show up here like last week Easter, then hey, God is here. The place is not what's significant. It's God who is significant. Our devotion is to God. It's not to a place. And so God's appeal to us is to seek Him, not seek a church, not seek a pastor, not seek a worship awesome worship experience, not seek awesome community groups, awesome children ministries. It is to seek Him, not other things like place. Why? So that we may live. Going to a church building will not change you if you don't encounter God in the process. And if you want to experience positive spiritual change in your life, you must experience the presence of God, not just being present in a church. Verse 6, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. So Amos repeats this appeal to seek the Lord and live. Otherwise, you know, this result's going to be really bad. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth... God is just and God is righteous. And an indication that we are His is that we possess the same character. But these religious people, they have no concern for justice, no concern for righteousness, 
And the thing is, is you can't separate justice and righteousness from your personal Christian witness, and you can't separate that from the church. It's an impossibility. Verse 8, He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Now verses 8 and 9 are a Jewish hymn. And so Amos, as skilled as he is, he inserts this hymn to remind them of a song that they've probably sung thousands of times while they were worshiping in Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba, and he challenges them with this. Do you even know who you're singing about? Do you even know what you're singing about? Because let me tell you guys why you ought to seek the Lord. That song you're singing... You realize He made the stars. You realize the constellations that are up there. He did it. Day and night, sea and land, He did it. And if you want any chance of deliverance, any chance of rescue, it's only through Him. That's it. And He makes destruction flash forth against the strong. So an enemy that's coming towards you, that is the strongest enemy you can think of, He can stop it. Remind you of someone in the New Testament? I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's Jesus' exclusive claim. You want deliverance. You want rescue. It's Jesus. Against any strong foe that comes forward, He's going to be able to withstand that. I have a question for you guys. Do you guys know of any powerful empire throughout the history of the world that has not fallen? Is there one? Is there a single one? Because I look at the United States, and so for the past several decades, we've been the world superpower. But I believe things are changing. I believe the world knows that things are changing. 2013 was the year that there were the most citizenship renouncements in the history of the United States. Would people leave the most powerful nation in the world? Things are shifting. Now, it's been decades. Amos gave the Israelites this 40-year warning. I wonder what prophet spoke to people in the United States and our time is coming. I wonder if there was a prophet in the United States that spoke 40 years ago about something that's, you guys better shape up. You guys better seek God. And we did it. We've been going the other way. And the thing is, are we ever going to turn back to God again? God who made the stars, He made day and night, He made sea and land. Are we ever going to seek Him again? And I, like Amos, I hope and I pray that our nation will seek God. But I, like Amos, lament, knowing God will restore, but we won't repent. And we won't seek Him. And the scary thing is, I know that God is just. And since He is, things don't look very good for us.
they look pretty bad. Because from what I experience and from what I see, our nation is nowhere close to repenting. And we're nowhere close to seeking God. Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. So here the powerful mistreated those who could not defend themselves and the weak had no influence at the gate. And so what was happening at the gate? At the gate in ancient cities is where the law courts were. Right? So this is the courthouse. This is where things were done. And so when people attempted to stand up for justice, they were greeted with hate. And when truth was shared, others despised them. And so the poor and the weak and the righteous, they were all treated with no justice. Does that sound at all familiar to what's happening? That the weak have no representation in our court system. That they're just being taken advantage of. How do our courts treat the weak? Why does it seem like the rich get away with so much? Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. And so these guys are here manipulating the economy and they are taking advantage of the poor. Unfair taxation against those who didn't have much while the wealthy got wealthier. Hmm. Hmm. Any of this sound familiar? And so they built houses of hewn stone. They planted pleasant vineyards. But Amos told them, you know what? You're not even going to get to live in that fancy house. You're not even going to get to drink a glass of that wine out of that little pleasant vineyard that you just planted. You're not getting any of that stuff. And you know what? This is a result of losing all of this stuff. And it's another disastrous result because they did not seek the Lord. People were so worried when the tech bubble burst, when the real estate economy just started plummeting and all this kind of stuff. And there was like this spiritual awakening a little bit where people were a little bit seeking God because, oh, wait, um, we can be broke. They're going to lose everything. We will lose everything if we do not repent and if we do not seek the Lord. We will lose everything. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, you who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. So the corruption within this culture of injustice, it was just so prevalent that the prudent kept silent because they knew that if they said anything, it just wouldn't do any good. They would be hated and they could possibly even be harmed because these people are colluding to keep their place and their influence and their power and their wealth. And so the person who knew what was right was pressured to keep silent. I see just so many similarities. It's scary. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gates. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And so here's God's second appeal in this chapter. First appeal back in verses 4 and 5 when the Lord said, seek me and live. And then in verse 14 and 15, he appeals to them again, seek good and not evil that you may live. 
First thing, these guys weren't seeking God. They were seeking other things. The other thing is that these guys were not seeking good. They were seeking evil. Now, in most sermons I preach, I can't expect everyone to remember everything that I say because even me, when I'm listening to people, I don't remember everything they say. I don't. And it's the same thing as like eating food. Like my wife just gives me the most nutritious food and there are times that I just don't even remember what she cooked for me. All I know is that I'm alive and I'm here and I'm healthy, right? And so the same thing with spiritually feeding the church. You guys probably don't remember 90% of what I say. But you're alive and you're here. But I want you just to take away two things. Just take away two things. Tonight, just take away two things. Seek God and seek good. Let's pray. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> seek God and seek good. If you can't remember anything else from this sermon, just remember those two things. Right? Repeat, please. And it's so easy because all you have to do is see God and just add an O, you know. See God, add an O. Good. All right, that's it. That's all you got to do. And so that's going to help you guys remember this action of mine. Like, seek God and seek good, you know. Verses 14 and 15. The people sought what they wanted out of God without thinking about how they were going to go about doing it and getting it. Because here's what they were thinking. I want heaven and I want joy, and I want beauty, and I want hope, and I want significance, and I want all this heavenly stuff. But the thing is, is they wanted all of that stuff without righteousness, without holiness, without goodness. They didn't want to do it the way that God prescribed. They were wanting the things of God while they were still remaining in their carnal ways and practicing their immorality. And they had an awesome church. They had a very vibrant church. One with great resources, great procession, great music, at times of giving, they're serving people. Things were just awesome for the Jewish religion during this times. And it's probably all the things you'd experience if you'd go to a mega church. With all the, the lights and the band and the awesome teaching and awesome greeters and an awesome cafe and, and parking attendants and you don't have to worry about a small parking lot. You have all the parking in the world. Some of them even have shuttles where they take you into the church. I'm not kidding. I just came back from this conference and this church was just like Disneyland. I was like, what in the world is this? I was kind of coveting. But you got all this stuff, right? And, and it was just a vibrant, vibrant church. But the thing was, there was no challenge to live a scripturally based moral life. And there are too many churches today that are concerned with helping people feel comfortable and accepted with their morality choices. That it's more about a motivational speech that is coming from the stage than it is a time of biblical truth. Now why has the church gone this way? And it's a really, really complicated thing, but I've kind of concentrated into this point because they want them to come back. I think that's what it boils down to. They want that person to come back because they got to pay for Disneyland. 
You got to pay for the thing. So you got to come back. And the places of worship back then, the equivalent to our fancy schmancy churches today, they were packed out with religious people. They were packed out. But the thing was, is they were spiritually impotent. Same thing today. Some churches are packed out, and at some of those churches, the thing is, you won't ever hear a call to righteousness. You will never hear a call to holiness. Why not? Because they want you to come back. They want you to come back. Please don't get me wrong. I want you to come back too. I'm not saying that coming back is a bad thing. But we want you to come back for a different reason. We want you to experience Jesus. We want you to have your life changed. We don't want you to come back because we want your money. We want your attendance. We want your volunteer hours. That is not why we want you to come back. We want you to come back to encounter Jesus. To be with others in community who are on the same mission of developing into a more devout, loving disciple of Jesus. And it's so that you can live a life that reflects how Jesus would live your life if he were in your shoes. That's why we would want you to come back. Now, how much of today's church is based off of personality, off of resources, business models, sociology? A lot. You read a lot of these church planting books. A little bit of spiritual stuff. A lot about the other stuff. And that's because we're so consumer-minded in how we approach everything. What am I going to get out of this? What is my spouse going to get out of this? What are my kids going to do out of this? How do I benefit from this thing? Is it easy to park there? Is it easy to gain access to this? Is it easy for me to plug in? And we have all these kind of questions. And by the world's wisdom, giving someone what they don't want leads to failure. So in Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, people gave people what they wanted, just like many other churches do today, and they were prosperous. But the thing is, is that a true sign of love? Giving people whatever they want, is that a true sign of love? Or is the better sign giving people what they need? Because it's so easy to give people what they want. Given the choice, any child, including my own, will pick ice cream over any nutrient-dense food. Even adults. Wouldn't we? Unless you're lactose intolerant. And so yet the nutrition is what is needed for better health, better functionality of your body, and what one gets in terms of spiritual nourishment in today's church, a lot of times it tastes pretty good. It's like ice cream. And there are some really, really talented speakers and teachers and preachers out there, and they're just, mmm, that guy's good. Right? Like, oh, wow, he's good. And because you feel full after you leave, because the guy's preaching is good, and you're like, oh, man, that was good stuff. But the thing is, you're, not, you're full of junk. It's not nutritious. You got full of junk. And so not much has changed from the people in the 8th century B.C. and today. God appeals to us to seek Him. Seek God. Seek good. And in verse 15, he calls us to hate evil 
love good and establish justice. And you want a blueprint of how to pursue holiness and righteousness. Amos chapter 5 here provides a pretty good one. Seek God, seek good, hate evil, love good, and establish justice. Now if you can remember five, great, but other than that, seek God, seek good, okay? So what will be the other disastrous results if there is no seeking of the Lord or no seeking of good? Verses 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers in to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation, and in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Culturally, Jews during a funeral, they hired professional mourners, right? People who knew how to wail. They knew that shrill, ah, like they knew how to do these things. And so here's a picture of this wall of wailing professional mourners. But the thing is, they are not going to suffice to match the amount of grief that the people are experiencing. It's not enough. And so what did they have to do? They had to go out to the fields, far away from the inner cities, out to the fields to grab farmers to help mourn alongside these who were skilled in lamentation. Because the grief was so heavy and so much. They had to go outside the city to grab these guys. you got to be a part of this. Because things are so bad. And another thing. Have any of you ever seen a farmer cry? Those dudes don't cry. Those dudes are tough. Those are tough dudes. They're just out there in the fields working all the time, and they get these thick skin, right? They're just out there working. They get these thick skins. And so here we see farmers mourning and wailing. So you get the picture. Things are really, really bad. To break down a farmer's heart, to wail and mourn, to leave his field, that he's working way out there and bringing him in. That's how desperate the wailing and the mourning and the grief is. Now, notice that God is both kind and severe. Jumping ahead over to Romans chapter 11, verse 22, Paul wrote this, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And so how the Israelites were judged was severe. But God was extremely patient with Israel. He sent Amos to them 40 years before any of that happened. And he's really patient with us today. Now we know that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And he is also just and severe. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's severe. Now, how many people claim to be Christians when in reality their actions show them to be more agnostics? And some may be delusional in their belief that they're a Christian because if you haven't experienced a change in your life by following Jesus, then what's the difference from when you didn't know Jesus? Ezekiel chapter 33 speaks of the state of some in the church today. And it speaks pretty loudly, I think. And so let's start at verse 
30 of Ezekiel 33. And so for some context of Ezekiel 33, God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel these words about Ezekiel's ministry. And there are times I sense the same thing is happening in the church today if I plug myself into Ezekiel's seat. So let me read this to you, starting in verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come. So people coming to church. And they sit before you as my people. So people arriving at church and doing their church thing. And they hear what you say. And you guys are so polite enough to come here and to listen to what I have to say and be courteous and quiet and listen to what is being said from the word of God. But here's the tough part. But they will not do it. You're just delusional people who just talk a big talk about their relationship with Jesus, but they don't walk it. Back to Ezekiel 33. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice. I hope that's me. A beautiful voice and lustful songs. I'm like, Luther Vandross? What is this? And plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. People who hear what is said, but they don't do anything about it. People give their critiques, and they have all sorts of opinions about the messages preached. But the big problem is that they come here and they hear, but they don't do and so the question is, are you doing? Are you seeking God? Are you seeking good? Do you hate evil? Do you love good? Are you establishing justice? Are you unchanged? I mean, how many books of the Bible have we preached through already? And so people were delusional back then, just like people are delusional today, professing to be Christian while their lives are unchanged. And please don't get me wrong. I don't want to get across to you that I'm higher than thou, and I'm reprimanding, and I'm rebuking. I'm lamenting. This is grievous for me. And, and talking a big talk about who a Christian is and what they do, and we have all this talk about justice and how to go about doing it. There's just a lot of chatter, man. But not doing anything much in terms of your own life and reflecting that you are indeed a Christian. And I'm not saying all of you, but there's a fair amount. And the thing is, is that I want you to come back. I do, but not for money, not for your attendance. I want you to encounter Jesus. So I'm not going to just tell you what you want. I'm telling you what you need. God is just. God is severe. God is righteous. And that is incredibly scary. Economic prosperity, active volunteerism, packed out audiences, those are not the signs of spiritual health. Those are not the signs of God's favor to an individual or to a church. Because if they were, 
Why was the church back in Amos' day given this harsh, severe judgment? They faced the God of justice, righteous, and severity. Why would they have to face that if that is what God's favor is, if that is what God's blessedness is? It's not. And the reason why it's not is because they were religious hypocrites. They were wickedly immoral. Verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now some of you may think, isn't the desire of the day of the Lord a good thing? Yes. But look at the third word there. Woe to you who desire the Lord. I think he's pointing to them. You guys. Not everybody, but you guys. You see how they longed for the future, how eager they were for religious rituals. They desired the day of the Lord, which is this. The day of the Lord is this. It's a day that's marked for triumph and sovereignty where the sovereign, the ruler, the king would win their battle in that day. And so that's how the day of the Lord was perceived by these people that the Lord would intercede with military might to destroy his people's enemies. That's what they had in their head when they were thinking Messiah. That Messiah would come and he would wipe out the Roman Empire. And so that's what the Jews expected of Messiah when Jesus was there. They were not expecting Jesus on a donkey. They were expecting Messiah to come on a white stallion. Because why? That is the symbol of military might. And I'm coming to overthrow the Roman Empire militarily. But what does he come in? Little donkey. Little donkey. He's a little donkey. I think Jesus was bigger than that donkey. And he's just riding in that donkey. And what happens? Jesus gets crucified by the Roman Empire. He doesn't kill a single Roman. No, he's not riding in a white stallion. And in fact, he gets killed and he doesn't kill anybody. And it's not that the day of the Lord didn't come back then. It did. It just didn't come in the way that they thought it was going to arrive. And many people today look at the day of the Lord as a type of escapism. Just like those guys back in the day waiting for Messiah, they were wanting to escape from the oppression of the Roman Empire. But the thing is, it's not a day of escapism. And many today, they are looking forward to the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back, the second coming of Jesus. Right? And so many are fascinated with the last days. And they long for the day of the Lord. And the day when Jesus returns as the Sovereign. Just like the people back then who were captivated by the day of the Lord, the coming of Messiah. And not that there is anything wrong with that day because that day is a glorious day. But the thing is, it's not a day of escapism. Now what do you mean by that? Have you met people who treat Jesus' return, and I use this word escapism, and I wanted to find it here like this, with an example. Have you ever met the people who are just financially irresponsible people and they're just going off doing their thing and they're being financially irresponsible and then you ask them what's going on what are you doing about this and this is their reason as to why they aren't worried about it and they aren't going to do anything about it and they just keep accruing debt and all this stuff and they don't worry because they say Jesus is coming back so you know I can just kind of build all this debt it doesn't really matter if I pay this back or not because he's coming back it's foolish. That's foolishness. Or the people that look at injustice this way. There is so much injustice in the world. 
And rather than doing something about it, this person says something like this. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. You know what? I can't wait for Jesus to come back either. I really want Jesus to come back. But in the meantime, do something. Don't just say, oh, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. Oh, so many sex trafficked little girls all over the world. That's really sad. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. I can't either, but do something. Don't just sit there and say, I, just, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. The day of the Lord is not a form of escapism. It doesn't release you from seeking God and seeking good. It doesn't release anyone from the reality of the present. you got to do something now. Verse 18 why would you have the day of the Lord? Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light for them. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his head against the wall and a serpent bit him, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? These guys don't even know what they really desired. They don't even know what they're asking for. Because they thought it was going to be this beautiful day, just a bright light day. But it's a day of darkness for them. They were going to be confronted with threat after threat after threat. Now on the other hand, those who are truly of God, they will see the light. They will inherit the promises of God. God will separate those who are His from those who are not His. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The day of the Lord is not about escaping this world. Because if you think you're escaping, you might be a goat. And you're just going from threat to threat. If we aren't transformed more into the image of Jesus, becoming more holy, righteous, moral, ethical, then the day of the Lord isn't going to be a day of light for you. It will be a day of darkness. If you're looking for escape, it's like the day of the Lord came and you were confronted with a lion. The day of the Lord comes, it's a bear now. And you, you're like, oh, I don't want the day of the Lord. And you're going to meet a serpent. You're just not going to be able to escape from anything. And there are these times we're preoccupied with the future. When the important thing is the holiness of the present. Verse 21, back in Amos 5. I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. This is God speaking. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your gongs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Things at their places of worship, they were great. They were awesome. They had great feasts, great offerings, great songs. These guys had it all. 
But what they did in their religious services was so disconnected from God. And their feasts were like the festivities that we have today when people make sure they attend church on Easter and on Christmas. That was just last week. It was so sad to see this morning, really, because I was hoping that Amos 5 wouldn't be us. Because last week, if you were in the morning service, you saw this was a packed house. It was full. And I was preaching this morning, and I was hoping that I wouldn't have to say this to the church. It was half the size. Are we not guilty of the same thing with these feasts? People just showing up Christmas, Easter, just kind of doing the feasts. And the 8th century BC people weren't all that different from the people today because they showed up for the big ones, the big festivities. Hey, we got to show up for that one. Passover, we got to be there for that one. The rest of the time doing whatever they want to do. And there are so many families in our nation that are the same way. They just kind of go to church culturally or just to go to the festivities. Hey, it's Easter, we got to go to church. Oh, it's Christmas, hey, we got to go to church. But there is no regard to Jesus. I actually don't know why they come. Why do you even come on that day if there's no regard for Jesus? And it's just like the families in Amos' time who celebrated religious feasts with no regard to God, they just went. So my question for the crowd this morning was, where did everybody go? And I'm lamenting. I'm not frustrated and I'm not mad. I'm grieved that we're no different. And God said this, I hate, I despise your feasts. So I questioned that Easter brunch that we had last Sunday. God, did you hate that? God, did you despise that? Not to take anything away from the people who volunteered and put all the hard work and do that thing. I'm so appreciative. This is between the Lord and the church and the Lord and me just asking God honestly. God, did you hate that? Did you despise what we did? God said, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And so this would be like our retreats. This would be like our conferences because these guys back then, they really enjoyed doing stuff together. So they had all these kinds of stuff. And God said, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And we have so much stuff going on. So many assemblies. There's like men's conference, women's conference, and worship conference. Like the Christian conferences is like nuts. I mean, it's so crazy. You can do a whole circuit of conferences. And so these people were very religious. Check this out. All the offerings that they had. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. Just all these ceremonial rituals going on. And you look at verse 23. Songs and melody of your harps. Music, right? Music with their voices and their instruments. And it's much like the church today that has so many programs and meetings and get-togethers and musical things all the time. I have relatives that are part of church choirs because they just love to sing. It has nothing to do with Jesus. has nothing to do with God. In fact, they are atheists. But they're singing hymns. It's the same thing here. And it's not that corporate gatherings and enjoying music are bad things. It's just that these guys were doing it with like this shell of religion. It's an empty religion and God takes things very personally. Because why? Because it's a personal relationship with Him. 
And where is he in all of it? You're singing in the choir about him, but don't include him? That makes no sense. You have festivities and celebrations about him, and you don't include him. You have conferences about him, and you don't include him. And you notice how personal God takes it. Back to verses 21 through 23. I hate, I despise your feasts. If that's not personal, I don't know what is. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take them away from me. The noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. It is deeply personal with God. And the thing is, God doesn't have any problems with feasts, assemblies, offerings, and music. What he has a problem with is their feasts, their assemblies, their offerings, their musics. He had a problem with them. What was the problem? Their religious practices weren't personal at all. He was outside of those things. Just empty religious practices and ceremonies that were completely severed from the heart to love and to see justice and righteousness extended to each other. Absent of that. Verse 24, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, it's not about religion. It's not about coming to church and doing churchy things. What is our life about according to Amos chapter 5? Two things. Justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. When you're in the midst of a corrupt culture, of immoral society, of wicked media, not Wikipedia, wicked media, close to the same thing though, the way to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus is not by going to church more. It's not by going to more Christian conferences. It's not about even giving the church more money. It's not about listening to more Christian music, which can be very bad. It's to do justice, to live righteously in the name of Jesus in the midst of all the corruption, in the midst of all the wickedness and immorality. God calls us to exercise justice and righteousness in the middle of all that stuff. Verse 25, Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? I find this kind of interesting because Amos wrote this 40 years in the wilderness. I don't think Amos had any clue that 40 years after he said this that the Assyrian Empire was going to come in and demolish Israel. But he marks this 40 years here. Now it's not about the act of sacrifices and offerings. It's about the heart and the corresponding actions of the heart. Justice rolling down like waters. Righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And in all aspects of your life is justice rolling out of you. Is righteousness flowing out of you. Now, what does empty religion lead to? Idolatry. 
idolatry. Verse 26 and 27. You shall take up Sukkoth, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. They weren't completely devoted to God, even though they were really religious. And God does not want our empty religious practices because they are impersonal and they do not include him. He wants genuine justice and righteousness flowing from us. And you know what? It can't flow without repentance. Now what is repentance? It's simply this. You turn around. Turn around. And when you're heading the wrong way, you need to turn around. Right, So whenever you exercise injustice or unrighteousness, turn around. And so we need to repent. Questions for you this evening. What are your idols this evening? What idols do you have? Back in the 8th century BC, here's a big one. Prosperity. They had so much. And they couldn't get enough. They just wanted more and more. But what idol... Do you need to turn around from? We all have different ones. And something else for you to consider. Do you have an escapism mentality where you are not living in the holiness of the present? You're looking at when Jesus comes back to deliver you from whatever you are when actually Jesus can deliver you right now. Your deliverance is now. You don't have to wait till then. So do you have this escapism mentality? Now, is how you define success indicative of idolatry of your life? So ask yourself, how do you define success? There's your idol. See, becoming a Christian ought to bring about change. And the change is this, to be more like Jesus. That you become more like Jesus, where we seek God and we seek good. We seek God and we seek good. Where we let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Seek God, seek good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that your spirit was represented well. That you are not a God of hatred. You are a God of deep love. And with that deep love, you are still a God who has justice in his character, righteousness and holiness in his character, and attached to justice is severity. And so I pray, Lord, that we don't have this image of you as just some big teddy bear, because at times, Lord, you can be a fierce bear. And Lord, we need to remember that even though you are gentle and kind, you are also to be feared as fear is the beginning of knowledge, or fear of you, that is. And so I pray, God, that people walk out of here not because they just gained more information, whether that's historical information or more things about the Bible or just trivial things, or not that they just felt a twinge of conviction as your word was being shared. Lord, please change people. Please change me. Please change these people in this church to be conformed into the image of Jesus more and more. In Jesus' name.